You made it. Sound as if I was recruiting her for her skills as a thief. Well, then I misled you, or you made the wrong assumption. Either way, we are asking her to resume a prior relationship, not do anything she hasn't already done. Voluntarily, I might add. No. She's got no training for this kind of thing. But to go to bed with a man and lie to him, she's a woman. She's got all the training she needs. I don't think I can get her to do it. You mean it'll be difficult? Very. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Hey, everybody. I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And our mission, if we choose to accept it, is to watch maligned movies and find their silver linings. And it's summer blockbuster season. And if there's one thing that's true about summer blockbusters, it's that if one is successful, they make more of them. Sometimes even if they're not all that successful. Sometimes I really question that math of, you know, they made money overseas and I don't know. They, yeah, just some sort of crazy accounting you know, type of the producers type of situation, like causes them to make, yeah, I don't know, for example, six Transformers movies or whatever. Those movies have all made a boatload of cash. I know, but I don't understand it. I don't know how that works. Uh, I, it, it's like people go and see those movies. That doesn't sound what right. They do. No, 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 they do. No, um, yeah, no it's no. gotta be some sort of like money laundering scheme, right? I don't know, man. People like explodey things and shiny objects. Yeah, but I don't... No, people don't go see Transformers movies. Here's the thing. (laughs) They do. Because they forget how bad the last one was. They're like, oh, Transformers! I love Transformers! And then they've already got the money. They've already paid. Next, you're going to tell me people go to see those Avatar movies. I believe that Avatar and Avatar Way of Water are sitting at like one and four on the all-time blo- uh, most money-earning movies of all time list. But that doesn't sound right to you, does it? <laughs> I mean, it sounds wrong to me. Yeah. But it is factually correct. Because, you know, I mean, it's just <sighs> Jurassic Park exists. So, I mean, I don't know why is it, you know, the highest grossing. <laughs> I don't know why I picked Jurassic Park, but the, if you told me that, I'd be like, sure. Or if you're like the Avengers or Star Wars, all of those would make sense to me. I, I I don't get how. I get a little bit how the first Avatar made a ton of money, a little bit. People love blue cat people. Well, yeah. I mean, if there's two things we know on this podcast, it's that one, people love blue cat people. And two, Martian sci-fi doesn't play in middle America. If we've said it once, we've said it a thousand times, but not recently, but check the archives. Yeah, go back go back <laughs> to the old days. Um, no, it's like, the first movie was a technical marvel. It looked gorgeous, but it was real dumb. So I get why people pay, went to see it. And then, you know, a lot of people, because it was a pretty thing to see on the big screen. Um, and then the sequel... I didn't go see, and I like the original a lot more than you do, in that I don't despise it. Yeah, I mean, it's only up from my <laughs> position. Right. So. Um, yeah, no, and um, and then I, I didn't see the second one until it came out um, on streaming, and I, I kind of wish it would have been cool to see it in the theater in like three installments, because it's a long movie. You know, like, it would have been would have been cool to see but it was wasn't very good speaking of pretty things that people like to see in movies tom cruise right i what a segue my friend <laughs> what i mean i knew as soon as you started that sentence how it was ending but uh yeah. i appreciate it nonetheless and look i mean tom cruise obviously movie star good looks like that's that can't be in debate but has he ever looked better than his hair in this movie <clears> Hmm. <throat> I mean, it's great. 
It is good. But I think I like a short-haired Tom Cruise a little bit more. I mean, that's fair. I I like all the Tom Cruises as is well documented. <laughs> I mean, on I and off the, this podcast. Yeah, I think the the best looking Tom Cruise is clearly with uh, bleach blonde hair and ghostly white skin and fangs. That one's good. I also like a uh, balding big hands Tom Cruise. Balding big hands Tom Cruise is a sexy Tom Cruise. <laughs> it's a good one. I, surprisingly nimble dance moves. Yes. Um. Yeah, Tom. Like, here's the thing. Like. I noticed it watching the movie this time, and I, I hadn't watched this since it came out, almost certainly. Um, yeah, I saw this for sure in the theater and then have not seen it again until this week. I I may have watched it a second time, like when I bought the DVD box set for like the first four. Oh, I, I might have. To be clear, I own this movie. There, I'm saying there's a chance I watched it that other time, but that was a while ago that I made that purchase. Yeah. Um, no, this was like watching it and seeing a significantly young, a 23 years younger Tom Cruise. In age, because visually it's a, you know, seven years younger Tom Cruise. Well, right. And that's that's the that's sort of what I was getting at is like. When you see Tom Cruise now, you're like, oh, he's ageless. But then you see an actual younger Tom Cruise and you're like, oh, he's slightly less ageless. Yeah. Like he does look younger in this movie. But at the same time, uh, whatever Thetan levels he's been auditing has made sure that his uh, he looks great. Yeah. The man looks fantastic. He really does. Um, but yeah, and uh, this is the second Mission Impossible movie. And it was a novel effort. Yeah. So just, I mean, people who know me or who listen to this podcast probably already know these things. But just in case this is your first episode, cards on the table. I love this franchise a lot. I like all the movies in it, uh, you know, not counting this one <laughs> like quite a bit. Well, and uh, if you go back and listen to our The Way of the Gun, you know that, like, obviously, I'm a big Christopher McQuarrie fan. Like, I really enjoy what he's doing. I rewatched the De Palma, you know, first Mission Impossible movie. Didn't need to do that to prepare for this, but I did. It's great. It is really good. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The Mission Impossible franchise might be the only movie franchise that has had so many entries, but like consistently gets better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, you could debate like Rogue Nation and. Uh, I've the titles are all a blur to me in all honesty. But I think even even. Yeah. If you don't say that, like each film is topping itself, I think what is really surprising about it and feels very rare because it's hard to think of any other franchise. Maybe there is one that's not coming to mind, but it is the fact that it has the longevity that it has and that it reinvents itself, that it, it still gets people excited about it, that let's be real honest about it. You know, again, as a fan, there, the franchise only has so many moves. There's going to be a scene where you think it's a person that... And then you, wearing the mask. And then the mask gets ripped off Scooby-Doo style, and it turns out to well, probably be to, Tom Cruise. Or in this movie, you think it's Tom Cruise, but then it's someone else, you know. I mean, I would submit that it, the mask, the face gets ripped off Mission Impossible style. Yeah, that's that true. That was a staple of the original TV show with Martin Landau at all. All right, fine. Scooby Doo ripped it off of Mission Impossible. So thank you, yeah. for speaking the truth. The truths that need to be spoken. Yeah, uh, but yeah, regardless of your cultural touchstone, and you're totally right. This all comes from the TV show. But yeah, they wear masks and have little voice chips, and they can impersonate someone else. There's some amount of double crossing and/or assuming that. Ethan is the villain. This movie doesn't lean as hard into that, but it still kind of plays with that in the opening scene. Well, that was an astonishing thing in the uh, IMDb trivia. Is that this is the only movie in the entire franchise that Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt is an avowed agent for the IMF for the entire duration of the film. Yeah, in every other one, that there's a moment where you would think that at some point they'd start giving him the benefit of the doubt, but every time they're like, no, it's Ethan this time. Like, I know every other time we thought it was Ethan, 
turns out he's our most trusted agent in a just an IMF riddled with double agents and you know people you can't trust. He's our most clutch agent for he's 25 years now. <laughs> Seven times he's proven that he is uh, IMF through and through. But this time we're shutting him down. We're bringing him in. <laughs> like it's he's he can't be trusted. Yeah, I mean that's it, like I said. There's only so many moves, but it's the way that every movie combines those handful of elements in a different way that feels exciting. Combined with Tom Cruise's willingness to do insane stunts and to then put the, himself in mortal danger. And then the thing that's really helping is that as time goes on, and somehow he again doesn't age, but like the technology just keeps getting better and better. So he's willing to do these stunts and increasingly you get to see him on the side of that building, climbing the world's tallest tower, he's climbing or, the Burj Khalifa tower or, or like riding a to, motorcycle on an airplane wing or yeah. Flying a helicopter, jumping from rooftop to rooftop, breaking his ankle and then filming the rest of that scene <laughs> with a broken ankle. Uh, All of those swimming things. underwater for seven minutes in an, un in an unbroken take just to prove he could. Yep. Yeah. All of those things. And the new one that is coming out, which is obviously why we're doing this is we're timing this to uh, there's a new one coming out. He uh, drives a motorcycle off a cliff and then parachutes <laughs> like, you know, and he did that stunt a bunch of times. I already watched the making a feature out of that of like how many times he had to practice base jumping and like all of that it's yeah like i would almost argue that this is the movie that 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 trend really kick-started because well, like, yeah. there's the because there's the iconic like uh computer hacking where he's in the the clean room and he like stops an inch from the floor and catches the bead of sweat on his hand and like that scene is iconic. It's it is the most memorable scene from and probably the most parodied scene from any of the Mission Impossible movies. Yeah, I mean, the no one has topped in any of the the sequels that mission. That is the mission that people think of. It's iconic. That's the thing De Palma did. That is yeah, the still the benchmark is just that, yeah, lower him from the ceiling, hacks the computer, beat a sweat, yeah. all perfect. Um, it, it it's phenomenal. Um but like he wasn't ever in actual danger in that movie no there's a lot of uh cgi you know i mean the end is this big train battle sequence but he's not you know it's green screen like he's not right. on a train there's no actual fun fact tom cruise has never been on a train in his life <laughs> never once I mean, it doesn't sound true, but I can't refute it. So I have to accept that as true. Oh, that's how that's how logic works. This reminds me, this is a kind of a non sequitur to where we're at. But while we're doing fun facts, I don't want to forget to mention this because this is in my notes. And I wanted to make sure to mention this about this movie. This is the only Mission Impossible film to feature music by Limp Biscuit. So far. So far. That's true. <laughs> Because there's part two of whatever the title dead, of the most dead reckoning. One. I can break them all down for you if you need all the dead titles. reckoning part two. Uh, that yeah. could have a Limp Bizkit song. You yeah. don't know it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, and there's still time if it doesn't have a plan to have it. Like we hey, can add that in post. Chris, hey Chris McQuarrie, uh, holler at your boys. We'll we'll get in touch with Fred Durst and uh, Wes Borland and the gang. I mean, what the hell is DJ Lethal up to? He's, I can name three people by the phone. Limp Biscuit. That's way deeper. I see. Here's this is why we're a good team, Andy. I can tell you all of the Mission Impossible titles, and you can go deep into the bench of Limp Biscuit. And that's why the, those two things combined. What else do you need to know? That's nothing. all human information. I, I submit nothing. <laughs> that is that is the alpha and omega of human info. <laughs> Um, that is the chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water <laughs> on the three dollar bill, y'all. <laughs> Spectrum <laughs> knowledge. Yep. But yeah, they that just in case you weren't sure that this movie came out in 2000, the theme song uh, that you heard a little bit of at the top is uh, Limp Biscuits rendition, rendition of, of the classic Lalo Chevron <laughs> uh, Mission Impossible theme. <laughs> After the like really fun uh, '90s like synth pop version done by the uh, 
the rhythm section of U2, which is just sort of weird that they did it for the first movie. But that one is good. I like that one. It a is lot. good. I like yeah. it a lot. No, I'm saying yeah. I do like it. Um, yeah. And yeah, we'll talk about the soundtrack soon enough. Uh, we'll get there. Um, but yeah, this uh, this whole segue started when I said that this was a novel approach to a second movie in that it was directed by a famed action movie director, John Woo. Yes. Well, also, you maybe we segued so far out that that's where you started. But I think you were also starting to say, just to finish this thought, that this is when Tom Cruise doing his own stunts really began because he did something like 90 percent of his own stunts in this movie, including the first scene that we see him in where he's free solo climbing the side of a, you know, cliff just for fun. Yeah. And while uh, he was actually like he was clipped in and roped in. Um, and they did edit those out. Rock climbing is still super dangerous. And the type of rock climbing he was doing, even with full carabiners and ropes and, and harnesses, is still incredibly dangerous. Well, and if you believe the lore of the movie, he both uh, like John Woo was legit terrified that something was going to happen to Tom Cruise. And supposedly Tom Cruise slipped at one point and grabbed onto the camera to keep himself from falling, which if he hadn't, even with the, you know support rope and all that probably would not have been a good day for him <laughs> i have a theory okay i'm gonna i'm gonna posit this out in the world tom cruise is an immortal being that exists on another plane of existence and this is his like entrance into our dimension and he's incredibly bored as an immortal so he does these dangerous stunts and he's died several times but they use the best take in every movie and it's it's some weird faustian bargain that he has and it's that's why he keeps doing this movies just to find out what could kill him i first so a couple of thoughts that i have on that one i could totally see that being true two regardless of whether the the first part of what you said is true or not i do believe that he wants to see he wants to die filming a movie (laughs) Like, yeah, I think I I feel I feel comfortable saying regardless of the bit that may be infused in this, I think that's true. Yeah, that he will continue to do stunts because I think he thinks he can't die at this point. And it's it's a sort of Talladega Nights situation where he needs to be challenged and can only truly be happy when he finds out that. Well, and it's not so much that I don't I think he doesn't necessarily think he can't die. He's just not sure what can kill him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. And he keeps challenging himself and winning. And then it's like, well, I have to heighten this. So I agree with that. I also think there is a slight possibility that maybe this is uh, I'm making a lot of film references, but the I believe prestige situation where maybe there's like a series of Tom Cruise clones and they do actually die in every time. Each time, like he dies every time he does a stunt, but then there's just a new Tom Cruise. But that Tom Cruise is unaware, and they're like, "You did it, Tom! You did the stunt!" And oh, he's like, yeah. great, great, yeah, cool. Um, so should I start running now? <laughs> yeah, we're both doing it. Nobody can see our Tom Cruise runs. Oh, that's right, because he runs with his blade hands. Yeah, you have to have the hands out like this. It's almost yeah, like a has... mall walker. Yeah, it it it, it has strong T one thousand vibes. <laughs> Yes, totally. <laughs> um, anyways, no. So this movie is directed by John Woo. And um, I don't know that there are two more different filmmakers in Hollywood than Brian De Palma and John Woo. Yeah, the, the truly insane thing about the backstory of this movie based on what I read is that. Well, I mean, first of all, they, they asked De Palma if he wanted to do the sequel and he did not, which I totally understand. But. Then when he wasn't in, supposedly Tom Cruise had loved Face Off so much that he went and got John Woo to do this and had a vision of every Mission Impossible film being a different sort of style and genre. And he wanted to get away from the De Palma spycraft, you know, thriller of the last film and wanted to do a, a straight action movie, but it's still a really bizarre choice. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do appreciate the idea and you could argue that even into step three directed by JJ Abrams, uh, that it was three very different filmmakers. And then Brad Bird did the fourth one. I think then Christopher McQuarrie's done the remainder. Yes. 
Yeah, McQuarrie's done two, well, done three, counting the one that's about to come out, and has a fourth one. <laughs> and Dead Reckoning 2 is... Yeah, um, yeah which were the, because they filmed those back-to-back, the Dead Reckonings, right. yeah. Um, and I mean, I would, I would argue that even though Brad Bird uh, came before Christopher McQuarrie, that those movies feel like they're in the same vain more than a lot of the others well i i would think it's fair to say that you have the first one which is a standalone great film you have this which for a while seemed like it had killed the franchise but you know late stage capitalism baby nothing's truly dead we're bringing it all back so at some point jj abrams having run out of other franchises to reboot like <laughs> got around to this one <laughs> you know i already did star wars and star trek and Whatever. Well, this way, this was really chronologically his first foray into rebooting franchises. Well, see, I was doing it like Lost, though. I was doing it J.J. Abrams style. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Time is not linear. You know, flashback, flash forward. Yeah, no, you're right. You you were correct to do it that way. That is that is how time works in J.J. Abrams' head. Also, for everybody watching, I'm holding up a box, and the contents of it is a smoke monster. Is a mystery that will be revealed later maybe it's purgatory damn it yeah it's purgatory <laughs> the box is purgatory yep um no but so oh, uh, but, i sorry, think I, sorry I, <laughs> I i was uh, going somewhere and i distracted myself i feel like from the jj abrams reboot point which his movie is thin but it created a foundation that the brad bird and mcquery movies have all felt like a continuation of that starting point yeah, I, I do. I wonder with MI3 because I for certain prefer it to MI2. Yes. Um, I, I do often wonder, do I really like the movie or do I really like Philip Seymour Hoffman? It's that you really like Philip Seymour Hoffman. That movie, okay. like so many J.J. Abrams uh, films, is a house of cards. <laughs> it is. Uh, there, It's all flats. There is not a real set. Uh, he... He music manned that film. There's the town of Rockridge. Yeah, there's <laughs> the you could just push it all over. Like, I mean, and here's the thing. I it probably sounds like I'm being really cruel towards him. I actually like and respect JJ Abrams, but he must be magic in a room because he is so razzle dazzle. Yeah. <laughs> he he is the music man. Because it's here's the thing. I like MI3, but if you pull at any thread in that movie, it all crumbles. Like, they don't even say what the thing is. The MacGuffin, I think they call it the rabbit's foot. And it's literally at the end, Ethan's like, so what is that rabbit's foot? And they're like, well, if you stay aboard, IMF will tell you. And that's it. That's the most you get for a payoff. The man does not do payoffs. He does setups. You want to talk about, if you can get someone to do your first act... Yeah. yeah. J.J. And, Abrams. And he he can create a foundation that people, other people come along and build on. You know, you get the the Ryan Johnson Star Wars. You know, you get the Brad Bird Mission Impossible. Like, you know, you you someone comes along and goes, oh, Simon Pegg, I want to use him. That's fun. And, you know, I, okay, this is the version of Ethan that we're going with. We'll build off of that. Let's do this. And it works. Yeah. Um, and we'll drop all the things that he just vaguely alluded to that no one's ever going to pay off. Right. Uh, anyways, let's talk about MI2. Isn't that what we've been doing? No, not, oh. not even, not remotely, not even oh. a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So John Woo was hired for question mark reasons and for being a good action director. John Woo, who, again, I, I've talked about my love of Mission Impossible. Face Off, amazing movie. I can see why you'd want to hire him for, based on that movie. I, I like John Woo. John Woo's a great director. He's a weird director for this franchise. And I think the biggest sin that this movie makes, among many, is they hired John Woo, but then they didn't let him be John Woo. And that's like one of the things I was reading is that there is apparently like a three and a half hour version of this movie. And that so, is also R-rated. Yeah. And um, and in order to get it to still a two and a half hour, which is a too long runtime. Yes. Um, 
that they just sort of haphazardly like hacked and slashed through the movie to get to the so there's like a lot of plot holes there's like it's he basically just found as little connective tissue between the action set pieces as possible is this is sort of what the edit that we got which i read the same thing that you did too but to be honest did you think there were plot holes like i i don't think that's the problem with the movie that that would imply that i was engrossed enough by the non-action scenes to care yeah, because I actually think the plot is pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's notorious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's a virus that... It, it's, the, it's the movie Notorious by Alfred Hitchcock with uh, Clark Gable and... Um, I forget who the girl is. Tippi Hedren, probably. It's not Tippi Hedren, but... It's, it's a series of birds in a trench coat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Was, um, oh, wait, it was Jimmy Stewart. Yes. <laughs> oh, just... I got this virus in me. I got, I got a virus. I'm affected with the Shamara virus. <laughs> You're going to get me Bellerophon. <laughs> you want me to get you Bellerophon? I'll throw a rope around and pull it right down here for you right now, Clark Gable. <laughs> yeah, we all remember the movie. It was great. Yeah, yeah Notorious. Yeah. Um, but no, it is essentially the plot of Notorious. Um, but yeah, there's a virus uh, created by Rada Sergebegia, um, and it could kill the world. Uh, and he named it Chimera for reasons. I think it was so that they could name the antivirus Bellerophon, the mythological slayer of the Chimera, but reasons. Yeah. I mean, Chimera, it sounds cool. It sounds like, it honestly sounds like a nineties heavy metal band. There is a band called Chimera. I'm like 90% yeah, sure. It's gotta be. But but yeah, so there's a virus, and then the there is a convoluted series of uh, that that guy from Snatch is uh, traveling with the virus in the opening scene, and he thinks he's traveling with Ethan Hunt, but actually it's the villain in an Ethan Hunt mask, uh, you know, Mission Impossible TV show style, obviously. And oh, you then, like Scooby Doo? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, that guy is the virus. Uh, then Dandy Newton shows up as expert thief who used to date that guy who, as you heard in that opening clip, uh, Ethan's misogynistic boss, Anthony Hopkins gets him to recruit to yeah. pretend to be interested in dating the guy again so that she can get close to him so that Ethan can get the virus back. The guy thinks that she's playing him convoluted series of events some more than, uh, she infects herself with the virus. With the last, like, vial of the virus. So she's now patient zero. And, it, and like, there's now a, suddenly a ticking clock in her body. And then Brendan Gleeson shows up to sign away his company. <laughs> and yeah. uh, motorcycle joust fight. And then, uh, you know, some... Beach brawl. Beach brawl. Uh, Save the day vacation you know, in Sydney cool kick the gun up in the air to shoot the guy while kicking the, the antivirus to Luther simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. You that's, know. that's, 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 you know, classic, that classic movie plot. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the movie. Um, but yeah, and... the, the biggest problem is it has a really long runtime. Again, I don't think the plot is terribly complicated. It's mostly just boring. And then, John Woo doesn't really get to John Woo until they start the end. The until you can tell exactly the moment that they they took the handcuffs off of John Woo because it's when all the doves show up and start flying in slow motion, and then you're like, okay, <laughs> oh, we're doing John, John Woo, Woo now. And then Ethan is like, what if I held two guns at the same time and fired them <laughs> in slow motion? Oh, John Woo. Yeah, it's like everyone slowly realizes they're in a John Woo movie in like the last 20 minutes and then they get on motorcycles. And again, that's no notes on the they drive their motorcycles full speed at each other, jump off them at the last second. So they collide <laughs> in midair. And, and, then, and if, <laughs> and if the, you've watched pro wrestling in the last year. Uh, Ricochet and Logan Paul did that exact spot at the Royal Rumble. They weren't on motorcycles, but they were on opposite corners of the ring, and they did. Wait, they that. weren't on motorcycles. I, I mean... remember a different. <laughs> uh, no, they, but yeah, but yeah. They, essentially, but instead of jumping off of motorcycles, they jumped off the ring ropes. But yeah, collided um, in midair. Yeah, and, and yeah. that scene is badass. Also, I do want to say that I had a thought watching this, which 
maybe other people have had this thought, but you know, and and who knows? Supposedly, this is another franchise that is done, but nothing ever dies these days. Get John Woo to direct a Fast and Furious movie. Oh yeah, why not? Right? Yeah, literally, why not? Yeah, that seems I, fun. Yeah, just do it. Just let him do literally whatever he wants with the franchise. Just give John Woo the Fast and the Furious the keys. Give him the keys would. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I I don't know where this fits in the movie, but like, Tandiwe Newton's uh character has this weird hyphenated name that doesn't make any sense, and that oh. just irked me. Oh well, that she's Nyla Nordgraf Hall. Yeah. Do you, uh the fun, I read there's well the fun ahead. fact about that is that uh so Molly, my wife, goes to California State University Northridge. And Nordoff Hall is uh, one of the buildings there. And that's why she's named that. So I, I literally like said that to Molly while I was watching. And she's like, oh, yeah, I know that building. <laughs> like, So, yeah, it's it's the theater building on campus. Mm, OK, that California makes a lot State more sense. University Northridge. That's why she. Ha- but, yeah, it doesn't sound like a normal name. It sounds like the name of a college campus building. Yeah. Nordgraf Hall definitely sounds like a campus building <laughs> yeah. as opposed to the. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the main things is this movie is really dull when act, when there's not action scenes. It's way too long. Um, I think before we get into the full-on silver linings, I feel like we have to talk about the butterfly effect of this movie. Well, I, I have, some more you have things, other things you want to Yeah, malign. I have a few things to malign. <laughs> sure. If we can. Uh, I'll make them quick. But so in addition to Tom Cruise, one other person has <clears throat> been in every... Mission Impossible film, and that is Ving Rhames, who I dearly love. Yeah. I don't understand what this movie's doing with his character of Luther, who is weirdly comic relief. Like, he's kind of bumbling in this one. He steps in dog shit at one point. He's, like, complaining about his fancy suits getting messed up. I I feel like someone thought he was the comic relief, and I really hated that, especially coming off of the first film, where he's the moral center of the movie. And as for arguably the rest of the series but i mean like at a time when he was you know when now everything's more firmly established but literally like luther's defining characteristic is that he has you know he was disavowed from imf but he is the one that's like i will not let this knock list get into the wrong hands i still care about what's right even though i don't officially have any reason to (laughs) he's a great character i love him they do him dirty in this movie yeah. Other than like when he finally like says, you know, I'm sick of this and just grenade launchers the cars. Yes. But it, yeah, it just that that was weird to me. And then also uh, we can't get past this without just Dandy Newton. I mean, again, I kind of mentioned it. There's some weird misogyny going on there. Her character is so thin and has nothing to do. And um, I, well, yeah, and, and, and I do kind of love that. They were hoping that she would then become like the recurring character through the rest of the series. And she's just like, uh, no, my character was awful and I didn't enjoy it. So, no, I'm not doing any more of these. Well, that's I, um, actually I have uh, I pulled she did an interview with Vulture in 2020 and she talked about it. And I, I do actually want to read a little bit of it. But sure. She they she literally was asked, uh, why didn't you do another one? And she said, oh, I was never asked. So she says that she was never asked to do any more of these, but um, because I'm just saying because I know that there's IMDb trivia that there was intent of like folding her into the franchise and then that never panned out. But yeah, so I so I don't know. That's just what she's saying. But there's she had this story and I just wanted to read this uh, just because it's kind of indicative of of just what it sounded like on set of this film. And I think this is worth sharing while maligning it. And then, yeah, we need to talk about all the butterfly effect stuff but she says there was one time we were doing this night scene there were so many extras with pyrotechnics and you name it and the scene with him and me on the balcony him being tom cruise and i don't think it was a very well-written scene i get angry with him we're frustrated with each other and we're looking out over spain it wasn't going well and john woo bless him wasn't there he was downstairs looking at everything on a monitor and john had made a decision at the beginning of the movie unbeknownst certainly to me that he didn't speak English. 
which I think was very helpful to him, but was extremely unhelpful to the rest of us. So the scene was happening and Tom was not happy with what I was doing because I had the shittiest lines. Uh, And he gets so frustrated with having to try and explain that he goes, let me just, let's just go do it. You rehearse on camera. So we rehearsed and they recorded it. And then he goes, I'll be you, you be me. So we filmed the entire scene with me being him because believe me, I knew the lines by them and him playing me. And it was the most unhelpful. I can't think of anything less revealing. It just pushed me further into a place of terror and insecurity. It was a real shame and bless him. I really do mean bless him because he was trying his damnedest. That's a good anecdote. Yeah. So I just, I think that that to me encapsulates in one story the vibe of why things weren't going better <laughs> on this, you know. So, yeah, all of that. Yeah. So this movie uh, has many and sundry far-reaching ripples and effects that were unintended uh, but happened anyway. So the main antagonist in this movie, Ambrose, I think his name is, or Amherst or Dean Smith. Ambrose. Dean Ambrose. Yeah. Uh, is played by a, a Scottish actor named Dugray Scott. Who had been, had just come off of the big film Enchanted with Drew Barrymore. Like, big upswing. He did that, then he did this. Huge upswing in his career. You know, like, this is, he's clearly, he's, things are going he's well. He's arcing, right? Yeah. Um, he was also, uh, while this movie was being shot, cast in another little movie that came out in the year 2000, X-Men. Mm-hmm. And he was cast... In a not inconsequential role, that of Wolverine. Yeah. Now, here's what you're saying. Like, but Dugray Scott didn't play Wolverine in 11 films. Yeah. He didn't go, you know, play our favorite Canadian superhero and then go on to a brilliant musical career. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Uh, yeah. Because because this movie went long, because... Uh, there were reshoots and the schedule went long. Well, he and also not, because eyes wide. Sh- well, all of those things, but oh, also because eyes wide shut. Eyes yeah. wide shut was before this, and the start delayed of this, shooting. Yeah, got delayed because Kubrick. So it was late <laughs> to even start filming this, and it got delays and reshoots and all of that. Yeah, yeah, and because of all that, DeGray Scott was not able to play Wolverine in X Men. Uh, and now we have one of the biggest movie stars of the 21st century, Hugh Jackman, yeah. uh, fully capitalized on that. Well, and the craziest thing is, so there's that, that Hugh Jackman's entire Wolverine career, which I think we can agree. I, I both feel bad uh, because if this was me, I would never get over the fact that I could have been Wolverine. And then 23 years later, I could still be playing Wolverine in a new movie with Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> like a, like that I could have gotten my beautiful critically acclaimed swan song in Logan and then still come back again a few years later fun. to have fun. And I could be making all that money. I would never quite get over it. But uh, the crazy thing is that's not even the only X-Men related no. possible ripple effect because Ian McKellen was supposed to play the Anthony Hopkins part. He was offered it and he turned it down. But if he hadn't, then presumably he also would not have been in the X-Men movie as Magneto. Right. And the, one of the reasons that he turned it down is because he was also at the time, like, beginning rehearsals as Gandalf for Lord of the Rings. Right. So all of his big studio films were about to happen. And this could have derailed that with its, you know, reshoots and delayed scheduling and all of that. Yeah. Um. So th- those are two unforeseen ripple effects of this movie. The biggest one, obviously, like, who knows if Hugh Jackman becomes a household name? I mean, he's a fa- fabulously talented actor uh, and everything. And he probably would have found his way onto our TV screens and movie screens at some point. But probably not as big as having played Wolverine. That was definitely what rocketed him to fame. Well, and it's just impossible now to picture anyone else in the role. Like, obviously, right. I, I I didn't see this audition. I don't know what he was like in his screen test as Wolverine or whatever, but it's just hard to, like, Hugh Jackman is Wolverine. He, right. He's yeah, the, 100%. He's the guy. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and so it's it's interesting to think about um, that maybe Dugray Scott ends up being the biggest movie star in the world for a few years. I'm going to go on a limb and say probably not, but 
who knows? He might still be playing Wolverine now, though. He might. You know, yeah, he yeah. could be. It could definitely be. Um, so uh, we've mentioned briefly the soundtrack that features one Limp Biscuit, mm-hmm. uh, and I might go as far to say the last Metallica song that I enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Is also in this movie, which was written um, for this movie. The only time they wrote a song for a movie soundtrack. Yeah. It's called I Disappear. It slaps. Mm-hmm. It, um, and weirdly, it does sound like that load reload era of Metallica, but good. Well, and I, I mean, I was still with it then. Like, sure. It was hit or miss, but there's still on load and reload. I can still find songs that I like. Oh, definitely. No, I, I actually, there's more than a few songs on both albums that I enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and now Metallica is famous for a lot of things. Bringing heavy metal to the masses uh, as one of like the premier thrash bands from the like mid to late eight, mid eighties. Uh, but also for really hating people pirating their music uh, via online uh, file sharing services. Particularly Napster. Yeah, particularly Napster. And the song that brought their attention to the fact that their music was being illegally downloaded was a unreleased uh, studio demo of I Disappear that someone heard it somewhere that they shouldn't have because this wasn't the released version. It was an unfinished version. And that got them on a rabbit hole of seeing that all these people were pirating their songs, myself included. Um, And yeah, and that led to their uh, big lawsuit against Napster. Yeah. So again, so the fate of Wolverine affected by this also you know all of basically everything that happened in the last 23 years in regards to streaming music like we don't end up with spotify and apple music and just the way things are now without napster paving the way and then ultimately being crushed being crushed and then um studios finding ways to take even more money away from artists well that's the thing is it's like you can definitely say that what napster was doing was not cool because money wasn't going to the artists and it was all being pirated but it's like now it's legal but money still doesn't go to the artists yeah it takes an unfathomable like you have to be getting like taylor swift level plays to really make money from your from like spotify apple music etc I thought Taylor Swift made all of her money by secretly being a scalper. <laughs> that too. <laughs> she owns uh, the resale market. <laughs> uh, Seat Geek is actually owned by Taylor Swift. They, yeah, it's we can finally tell the truth now. Yeah, she is finally it's all out there. Yeah, the Seat Geek is T Swift. <laughs> um, but no, but no, I mean, but like you have to be like in that like elite tier of musicians to really earn, like really make significant money from. Well, yeah, you have to have like millions and millions, millions of and downloads. millions of streams of yeah. downloads in order to see any sort of profit. Um, yeah, uh, and <laughs> this movie, largely forgettable and inconsequential, actually had some major impact on Hollywood and the music industry. Yeah. And again, like we said, too, also ultimately was the movie that Tom Cruise really got, you know, was like, no, I'm going to do my own stunts and the stunts are going to be climbing rocks and driving motorcycles. And 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 I will say, too, that I think a fascinating thing, I think particularly with the Christopher McQuarrie films, is that if you look at this movie, while it doesn't work, all of the things that are cool in it, he's basically done like that i don't know if that's tom cruise going like man i really you know i loved climbing that rock and i wish there that had been a cooler thing and so it's like okay in fallout we're gonna have a big fight with uh you and superman where you guys fight on the side of a rock that you climb or you know i really love the motorcycle stunt and it's like okay you're gonna do more motorcycle stunts like that it's just all that stuff seems like it's found its way back into later films because it seems like Tom Cruise is like, no, I want another shot at these things. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the silver lining of this movie sort of begins and ends with the action. Like, uh, we already talked about the the motorcycle joust, which is just badass. Uh, the fight it, yeah, with him you, and Dugray. I was oh, gonna, if you want nothing else, just find a YouTube clip of that. It's worth it. Um, 
the fight with him and Dugray Scott at the end is super John Woo, and it's it's a lot of fun. Um, but I think my favorite sequence it's uh, when they're at like the cliff face stronghold, and it's just Tom Cruise working his way through and killing henchmen. Yeah, like that. It just it's like basically an ep- like a level of Metal Gear in uh, a Metal Gear Solid, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Like he's just like hurricane running and like choking out and and just beating these you know faceless henchmen um, as he works his way up to the big boss. But it's um, yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, and you get the slow motion doves like that just show yeah. up because they're like, okay, finally something cool's. Those doves only show up when something cool happens. So right, they, but that's not... in their contract. That's yeah. part of their rider. They can only show up when something cool is happening. Uh, but I, by the way, it's a small thing, but I do think this is a silver lining because it's this movie. You know, we we haven't really seen in the other movies. They don't really lean into the idea of people wearing the masks to pretend to be Tom Cruise. You know, it's usually him pretending to be someone else. But what I really did appreciate, that's a small thing, but it, I I did catch it and I I really did like it was so there's two different times where we think we're watching Tom Cruise, but it's actually someone else. And the first time is Dean Ambrose is uh he's he suspects that uh, Nordoff Hill Hall is uh, uh, what is it? Nyla. He he Nyla. thinks that she might be double crossing him, so he puts on an Ethan Hunt mask and pretends to be him. But watching it, there is a malevolence in Tom Cruise's eyes in that scene where he does actually look evil, which I like. Like he looks like the other guy. Which also, well, we're just talking about alternate realities and John Woo. I just, I'd love to see an alternate reality where it's Nick Cage and Tom Cruise in Face Off. Just throwing it out there. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey. But but I thought his eyes in that scene—he looked legit evil. And then the second time it happens is the henchmen that basically we see the this the the main henchmen and Tom Cruise fighting, and then we cut away from them, and we don't really know who gets the upper hand. And then what happens is we see what looks like it's the henchman dragging Ethan Hunt to his boss to kill him. And for like we see Ethan on the ground and he's mumbling and he's just laying there. And there's this panic in his eyes the whole time. But his boss isn't really noticing it and he just shoots him in the chest. And then it's revealed that that's actually the henchman and Ethan is pretending to be the henchman. You know, this is like the cut on his like he has like a prosthetic finger or something like well, that because he had way. cut the tip of his finger off with his cigar cutter earlier in right. the film that's right yeah but uh but it was just i caught that that tom cruise's like his eyes are really big because he it, cause it turns out the guy's mouth is like taped up that's why he's not talking because he can't so he's trying to talk but he's just not making any sound but then his eyes just have this panic in them. And I, I don't know. I, like I said, it's a small thing, but I, I caught it both times and I just appreciated that little Tom Cruise is selling that he's someone else looking right. like Ethan. And I just appreciated Wait, it. So you're telling me that they didn't just actually make like identical rubber masks for people in the movie. No, no surprise. No. I do. I mean, so mm. You know, a lot of the films show that they can make the masks and they can kind of make them on the fly. But are we to believe in this film? Because I'm sure they thought it out. It seems like a film that they would have really thought everything through. Did Ethan just have a mask of his own face and a mask of that henchman's face because he knew that exact thing was going to happen? Yes. Okay. Because it's not mission difficult. That's why he knew. No, it's not mission difficult. It's uh, mission really hard. Yeah. Um, I do like, is it a silver lining that Anthony Hopkins refused to put his name on the credits? No, I'd like to be uncredited, please. It's like, no, thanks. I'm good. It'll be mysterious that way. They'll never know who that guy, but everyone be like, who is that guy? <laughs> kind of looks like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I do love that he's uncredited as Swinebeck. Yeah. Who, who knows what happened to Swinebeck after this mission? He, he retired, he, I guess. Yeah, maybe he shows up in uh, Dead Reckoning. They're bringing back the one guy from uh, from the first film. I can't remember that guy's name, but the um, the guy that you know suspects Ethan that has the big 
Ethan uses the chewing gum to blow up the fish tank to escape him, and then the guy's hunting him the whole time. Like, that guy's in the new movie from 25 years ago. Because we've all been, they finally got our letters. We've all been writing in the letters, and like, what happened to that guy whose name we all remember, which is why I'm not saying it. We all know him. We all know know him. and love him. He's great. He's that guy. It's like Mr. Hunt. He's got that cool voice. We all know it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's that's fun. Um Yeah, this this movie like it's by far the worst in the franchise. And it's not even think, close because the, all the other ones are good and this one's not. Right. This one is is a bad movie. It's dumb. What watch the last 40 minutes maybe? Here's what you do. You you skip ahead until you see doves, and then you know cool shit's gonna happen, and that's when you start it. And we we gave you the setup. There's a there's a virus. It's it's the Hitchcock thing. It's notorious. Yeah. So just yeah, just skip to the the doves. You get the all the cool henchmen taken out. You get the motorcycle fight. You get him. Ki- the only thing that you really lose, which I I'll say that I <laughs> I don't think it's good. But I love that it's in the movie is the blatant Oakley product placement of a missile is shot at Ethan. So, again, we get this very long scene of him climbing the side of a rock. And when he gets to the top, why Ico Ico is playing. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say set to Ico Ico, one of the weirdest needle drops that we've ever had on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that place, he gets to the top and then a helicopter shows up, shoots a missile at him, the missile and plants in the ground. And out of it comes a pair of Oakley sunglasses, which that give him his mission, which give him his mission, which is only there to show us the sunglasses. Because trust me, I know they're Oakley. I mean, I would know they're Oakley's anyway, because they're very recognizable. But they, you're going to read that brand name on the side of the glasses. Oh, yeah. Shameless capitalism. But I think we did it. I, I think we did it. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Dude, don't. They'll, they'll shut us down. That was three words. They were fine. Yeah, you're right. It's five. I think five is the limit. <laughs> you could have still been doing Fat Albert for all they know. I could have. You, they don't know. They don't know that I wasn't doing Fat Albert. Yeah. So, so I think we're still good. Hey, hey, hey. It was Kittridge. Kittridge. Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. I see there is a new episode of Hobo Radio in my podcast feed. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a Hobo Radio listener can feel. A hobo radio listener at the start of a long episode whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope Joel makes a joke about banging Lars's mom. I hope Lars tries and fails to coin a new catchphrase. I hope they talk about Batman. I hope. Hobo Radio is a pop culture podcast on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network. It is available wherever you get your podcasts.